Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Offsite podcast, where we chat all things construction, technology, and everything in between. My name's Carlos, and I spend most of my days talking to construction teams about how they deliver projects. And I'm Jason, and I help build products that construction teams use to deliver their projects. So today, we're going to be talking about OpenAI, a new release from Nplan, and we'll finish with a focus on how organizations purchase software. Hopefully that last one's not as dry as it sounds. Um, so, so super unique, <laughs> super unique topic. We'll talk about AI. No one's really doing that at the moment. Yeah, it's not exactly uh, on every news story on every platform at the moment. But uh, yeah, straight into OpenAI. Um, obviously, it's everywhere at the moment. Uh, more specifically, Chat GPT, which is uh, the sort of leader in this space, which is being funded by Microsoft and a bunch of other organisations. So we've seen all the news with uh, the sort of public interface where you can sort of ask questions and it gives you results. Um, and it's a competitor for traditional search market like Google. But more specifically, we're seeing apps integrate with it. So we saw Slack have an integration now where it will do things like summarize a thread into actions or takeaway points. For, so I guess for, for the uh, for the for the typical construction audience, you might need to say Slack is similar to like Microsoft yeah. Teams. Yeah, imagine like uh, Teams and WhatsApp had a baby and it wasn't shit. <laughs> That's probably how I get to that. So pretty cool because non-IIR companies can sort of tick the AI box and utilize what is crazy expensive sort of software and models to build. Um, so everyone's not trying to build the sort of basics. But quite interesting when we start to think about how those sorts of applications could be built into construction or utilized in construction teams. We know construction's naturally cautious uh, with adopting tech, particularly things like this, uh, but where could it go? I'd be interested to, to see your your thoughts. I've got a few thoughts in, in the space, and obviously with, I think just recently in the last handful of days or weeks, uh, OpenAI announced a, a new uh, endpoint for an API, which is uh, GPT 3.5 Turbo or whatever it's called. And basically the, the request cost has dropped like tenfold to, to use the, the service. Yeah. With that cost being totally reasonable, the proliferation of um, applications kind of grows. I think in construction, like obviously with any super hypey thing, there is like a proliferation of people trying to get on a bandwagon or try something out. And, and um, I see a lot of opportunity in the space. Obviously, lots of people trying in the space of applications, existing SaaS applications, software as a service applications, uh, in, integrating some form of AI-enabled features. And I think um, with so much hype around it, a lot of it will be, there'll be a lot of stuff that's not useful, right? But... Um, I really see, uh, especially in construction, that that if you are that any application or platform that is um, used by construction teams today to do data entry or data manipulation, if if they at some point in the future, a couple of years, ten, years, who knows how long, at some point, a number of those workflows will be AI enabled. And so, if you're not experimenting with them now, at some point, it's going to become the norm you know if i think of a specific example cast like let's say you're let's say you're doing a site diary so you have a platform where people capture site diaries at the moment notoriously like takes a while to do you've got to record every person that was on site how many hours that they were there for 
you know, yeah. what was worked on. You know, if you fast forward and you could easily imagine a situation where you just say, uh, everyone was here except Bill and your hours are recorded. That might be buggy for now. That might not be 100% right. But if you could get that right 90% of the time or some percentage of the time, the amount of effort that that would save would be substantive for someone to be able to understand the context and then translate that into the application that you're using. So I guess to, to rewind, I see enormous opportunity in the space of existing applications and platforms utilizing AI to leverage or make the people using them more productive, less so the like pure AI play because that's not how my brain works. But yeah, entering data and being able to say or type something that understands contextually what you're trying to do, understands how the application that you're using works and translates that into actions that would have taken you 15 minutes or something to enter would be super powerful. The benefit of it being an existing application is also, if I think through like the user experience, if you were to make an application or a bot or something where you would talk into your phone and say, everyone was here except Bill, if it was wrong, correcting that record's kind of tedious. Like if you've, you know, it's entered it in a system somewhere, maybe you don't have the interface on your phone. Yeah. But if you, if you plug that sort of power into an existing application where you used to type that in and it shows you that, and then you can make some adjustments, you know, as it's, as it's being tested and getting better, it might pre-fill most of it might be 90% correct. You can make some adjustments where it's not, but you're still saving time. Yeah. That. I think the, um, the adjustments part is interesting because my mind immediately leapt to suggestive or advice type um, use of it. So we had um, a project here in the UK, it's probably about a year ago now, who effectively asked us to build something that would allow engineers breaking down P6 activities, that it could suggest the, what the breakdown activities should be based on lots and lots of documents of how you should build concrete or whatever activity you're looking at. And that, that would be really tough because it was just their own data set. So it's not like these massive models that are accurate because they have a wealth of data. But if I put my Q hat, QS hat on, if the advice is wrong and then something goes wrong on the project or there's a safety incident or there's something, you're in obviously a horrible space then of like who's liable. So I can imagine that being one of the key things that are going to be discussed over the next five to 10 years when these sort of things are looked at. But I think going back to your point around checking, you're going to need the, the checkpoint where it's a human going, yeah, I'm actually confident that this is an answer I'm proposing that was suggested to be my system, not just system suggests answer, answer, answer is sort of executed immediately. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that's the, the the power of the existing interface and having something like this. We spoke last week about the idea of a co-pilot relationship and leveraging, you know, if we think about how our team works with regards to building, like developing a product and coding in, in a product like GitHub, the, the GitHub co-pilot feature from every one of our team that uses it is an enormous time saver and it's wrong, like quite a lot. So the team starts typing in the same something way, in. Though. Google Mail is wrong sometimes when it guesses what you want to say, right? Yeah, correct. Or, yeah. or like, um, yeah, or you could imagine the guessing the next task that you want to build in a sequence of, of tasks like the scenario that you were talking about. You might be wrong 
But if you if you if we look at what developers would say that would use Copilot, like okay, it might it might auto complete a function that I'm trying to write. It might be it might not be totally right, but it might be like eighty percent, and it saves me naming everything perfectly like gets rid of a bunch of typos might save me a couple of minutes and, and cost me 20 seconds to correct it something like that you know um yeah in the grand scheme of things you're saving time right um yeah which is the most important thing and last point on this topic um i haven't read the api documentation you'll be shocked today does OpenAI keep slash store all of the data that's presented to it um because if we look at the context of sort of cyber chats with our customers offshoring of data, the usual bits and pieces that we have to go through. Is that an immediate no with a tool like this? Because it's obviously, yeah, over in the US. Um, the They do store, uh, I've not read it line by line, but yeah. I've uh, listened to discussions on this topic. They obviously store some amount of it because that's training the model. That's helping them. Exactly, yeah, it works the model. because it grows, right? I don't think they're directly feeding that back in currently to the, the corpus of data that's trained on, but I think it it, le- it is definitely yeah, there was a body of it. Like period of time, it was like the training data, right? Yeah. So it, it didn't have anything like the last six months or something. There's like this gap. Yeah, a year or so, something like that from memory. Yeah. But like, it's not just the language. That, there's examples of um, products that will... Let's say you took a, even if you put your QS hat on and play with spreadsheets again, you can, uh, there, there's, there are models that will understand the rules of a spreadsheet and you could say, summarize this data showing month by month of this, you know, subcontractor costs broken down by WBS over the next 12 months and it will output that. Yeah. Um, so data entry, anything that's data entry or data manipulation, I think both of those areas in going back to your initial question about construction, I see massive potential to, I guess, supercharge existing platforms with the AI. That's like the first wave that I can envisage. Yeah, yeah. Right. Moving on then straight into uh, an AI platform that we know called Mplan. So they have just released a tool which is, and we, we're on a topic there, which is probably the least experience I have on any topic we've spoken about so far, which is integrity or schedule integrity checks. So it's a tool that will check out your program and go, right, this is sort of a, an actionable area of your program where you could have bad logic or missing logic, or it tries to look at how the makeup of your schedule is sort of, yeah, working. So... <laughs> no, don't pass to me keep going <laughs> but yeah i'm trying to think of the right words to do this as a complete amateur the quality uh, of your it's schedule all right. at this point now all planners have turned off anyway so uh <laughs> now you can say whatever you want yeah so it does these checks and they've released it as a free tool so there's lots of tools out there it seems from a quick google that you pay for this service oracle do have a tool that does this i'm going to guess it's expensive and maybe it's not as good it's quite hard to see oracle documentation without being a user that you have to sign up which i noticed yesterday so yeah keen to understand jason i guess maybe you can give a more accurate uh intro as to what it is but from what i was seeing i was thinking Obviously, it's great that people can do this for free and not pay for it. If it's a quick check that you just pull your XCR app, file out a P6, for example, upload it and, and do that. But obviously, we know NPlan is built on, I think they have 500,000 schedules. So is it then trying to increase that pool of schedules that then improves their actual core offering? So it's a bit of a tactic at play. 
Yeah. Okay. Jason, how would you describe Thanks. it? <laughs> no, the, <laughs> the, um, I guess for background and first preface by saying I'm not a planner, but for context, there is a, there is a, thing that is called a schedule and integrity check there is a there is like a standard check which is called a dcma 14 point assessment and basically it will the idea is that you're checking whether you you're checking the robustness of the schedule so you're checking whether you have you know lags that are holding two tasks apart tasks without no logic right so yeah the idea being that like the general premise is premise is okay your schedule looks right today but how robust is it if things change you know that you don't end up with weird outcomes you know if you stick a big lag in somewhere to keep things or you yeah. don't have a predecessor and the plan changes then yeah um, I think my meltdown then was missing the word robust i think that summarizes it quite well okay <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So you, there's a there's an enormous rabbit hole to go down about how effective those this check is in general, but they're often required under contracts construction contracts to perform them, whether or not you know they have they have some value, and oftentimes yes yeah, schedules will be required to check them. If you think about there are like you said other tools on the market that do this schedule assessment, and like if the most common that I'm aware of is a is a product called Acumen Infuse. I think uh, from memory, it's like if we're talking about Australian dollars, something between five to 10K a license per annum. Wow. So it's an expensive piece of software. From people that I know that have had a go at the, or use the the free tool that Mplan have provided, you know, it's it's definitely not as mature as what you're getting when you purchase that. But if their goal is to keep evolving it to put the point that it does you know, meet the requirement that teams have to to do this check. It's, I think it's great for construction projects um, to not have to purchase another piece of software. You know, if, from an end plan perspective, it's probably costing them nothing to provide the service relatively. Yeah. yeah. Massive tangent on this, but whenever I go to Project Controls Expo, every slightly older guy seems to have been an ex-employee or vacuum infused. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, sure it's not I the same know, right? person wearing 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 a different uh, disguise every time you run into yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trying to get a job as a sales team. The um yeah, okay. what's, what's what's really interesting to me, sorry uh, to cut you off, yeah, is is if you think about like a, as a software company, ballpark I think something like the service from Mplan and, and we'll probably get corrected if I'm wrong, you can probably expect to spend probably 150k or something or, or something in that range for a, for a project. So you know, if you're if you're trying to um, build a software company, one of the things you're trying to do is generate leads that are of the people that would purchase your, your product. And uh, when you try and do that, you'll suddenly realize that you know, say you're say you're selling scheduling software, you'll get Sally, the hairdresser from Wisconsin, sign up because she was trying to get a piece of software to schedule hairdressing appointments. You'll get in rubbish leads, basically. The brilliant thing about this tool is obviously anyone that's looking to do a schedule integrity check is pretty much the target customer for Empire. Yeah. So it's a great way to, you know, kind of do like a loss leader and get people familiar with the platform, get them enrolled in the platform and then start to show them the, the, the additional benefits of the AI offering that is the core product from Mplan. So I think it's a great idea for them. Yeah, it um, must be um, it must be a good product because you really are in a bad spot if you give away a free tool, it's shit, and then everyone judges 
the rest of the company on the thing that they used for free. So they must be backing it and actually being a really good free tool too, because you're sort of, that's your first impression, right? Of um, a whole bunch of leads. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. it should be decent. Cool. So uh, on to the third topic, uh, really hard to get a segue here, but uh, software, <laughs> I guess is the one. Um, I'm super interested to ask you some questions on this because well, one, this is like part of what you do every day. Two, you've also got your uh, X quantity surveyor hat on here. The way that construction teams purchase software, do you think that it's fundamentally like what would be, what's different about construction? Do you think this would be similar to how non-construction businesses purchase? Okay, that's a good question. Different in, so selling software to projects, which is like in a, if we compare it to a non-construction company, I, I can imagine, I haven't got direct experience of it, it would be unusual or uncommon to sell software to teams within a company. I'd imagine if you go finance, tech, industries that are pretty fast in construction, it's always centralized and it's sort of a business need that drives a procurement process, which then deploys software and rolls out across the company. So I think the first option is probably quite unique to construction. And that's, I guess, partially because construction projects, especially large ones, are almost set up like they're their own companies. It's not just a team delivering a bit of scope that's reporting back to head office. Like you really are in your own little world for a number of years. When I was on a when I was on a construction project, one of the things that we always used to get told off for was using purchase orders for everything. When yeah, you're not. It's the the terms of service are really not applicable to purchasing a lot of oh, things. Yeah. We used to try and do a purchase order for everything. If you want to, you know, you need to hire a consultant, do a purchase order. Do you know? We used to do a purchase order to hire our five-a-side football pitch every Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a, there's a whole set, there's a whole infrastructure in in construction companies around around purchasing that is that is really tied to this thing that is maybe not super fit for purpose. I don't know if it is totally. I don't know if it is unique to construction, but um, you know, a lot of the rest of the economy has uh, credit cards. Um, yeah, a lot of the rest yeah. of the economy has uh, you know direct debits. Obviously, when sums get higher, the credit card gets becomes quite an expensive option to to use, and obviously there's limits and all sorts of things. The you know you mentioned before that projects sort of become like like their own company. We used to talk about it on when we were on a project that we were kind of like the franchise of construction company A, you know, in this town or working on this project. Yeah. You know, the, the the head office was was there and you you sort of wore their colors, but at the end of the day you were responsible for the profit and loss of your franchise. The 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 project being like its own company or franchise, does that does that normally translate to its having its own bank account? Yeah. So projects will have their own bank account. They'll use sort of enterprise systems to do their sort of accounting, which is within the rules set or governed by one of the chosen JV partners or the contractor on a project. They'll have a project to bank, bank account. They will have a project card, albeit the rules are pretty strict on the card should only be for like, we hit a milestone and they do something social for the team, things that 
shouldn't really be on purchase orders. Do you, just to interrupt, do you think that's because that's because historically the contractors haven't had a way to capture the approval flow for charges on those cards? I'm not sure on that. I know one of the fundamental reasons for having a project bank account is each month the contractor asks the client for a pot of money and they go, right, this is what the money's for and they give them a breakdown. They then pay their supply chain from that money. So to stop the contractor trying to get more money than they're actually going to pay out, they monitor the bank account to make sure it's emptying each month too. So they're not sitting there trying to build up a bank of cash or earn interest and things like that. So the bank account is monitored by the client organization. So it's it's literally cash in, cash out each month, and there shouldn't be this pot left. But I mean, like the um, I mean the credit card thing versus a, a purchase order. The you know, say you were going to purchase a um, I don't know what's the scenario. Say you were going to say you were going to put a barbecue on or something. Yeah, that might you may you might put that on a credit card, but you were going to spend two grand on a piece of software or something for a couple of people on the project, and that will go through a purchase order. Is that purchase order the preferred way historically, do you think, because the card transactions didn't capture an approval flow? Because obviously a lot of projects, you know, a lot of projects will have a matrix. It's like this person has an authority up to this and up to this and up to this, you know. Um, And card, yeah. On one of my last projects, like it, it was petty cash or minor purchasing under 500 quid. So, your P card could be anything from a like a med kit that maybe it was used they need to replace to as you say something social and that will just get done the accountant would then produce a report at the end of the month saying this is our petty purchases as soon as it goes to like a grand or two grand purchase order system it understands the full it's like an automated set of approvals who it is on the job the order and everything else so there is the the control measure rather than like had some other card and then deal with it later like we would do when we do our accounting at the end of the month in zero because like obviously i wonder whether that does change over time with um you know with expense management type because if you go to other yeah like if yeah, you think yeah. about what we, we do we get we you know someone can try and purchase something and then there's an there's there's an approval process for that transaction yeah 100 percent. they're using like legacy systems a lot of contractors have their own um accounting software that is like originally SAP or something like that, but it's pretty old school. It's not like they're using zero and they're hooking in wise and everything else that we do. Yeah. Um, 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 I think another, oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, go, no, no, go ahead. Another thing that's um, quite important with the way software is purchased, and I try not to go too heavy into QS world because they'll have a few engineers dropping off, but if they're listening. There's um, no planners left uh, by now, so <laughs> we... Might as well only alienate the rest, right? <laughs> In construction, there's this massive thing, which is disallowed costs. So every every pound that you spend on a project, the client will go, is that a pound that should have been spent on the project? If you shouldn't have spent it, they don't give you the money. So that's a loss if you think about it. If it's not contributing to the scope, it's outside of scope, they're not paying for it. And software is a massive gray area because the clients always have this clause. It might have changed, but it won't have changed much, which is... It has to be project-specific costs. So the first thing they do is get these blanket charges from head office, which could be for like Microsoft and all the usual suspects. And they'll just say, we're just all of that because you can't prove that was specifically used on this project. 
so it kind of backs up the project-based purchase order because it's quite clearly for this project, so that's going to be fine. The enterprise customers that back charge projects, that's why they always ask us for detail because the projects then want to recover that cost. If it's in an overhead, obviously that's kind of dealt with separately. So there's this real drive for contractors to gather the detail they need to have the fight effectively. Because if you can't prove it was a, a person that's specifically on this job and that's their license for software, they get it disallowed and that comes up your bottom line. That makes it kind of unique because I think if you look at how other industries would purchase software, you would have something like a card or a um, or a direct debit at the um, at the bottom level. You know, if you've got a team testing something, or in this case, like a project, um, you would yeah. purchase on a card. Or a, and at that point, your subscription might be quite variable based on how much you use it or how many people, depending on what the mechanism of like the measure is. But once you get up to a certain level where it's a, a tool that the company uses, oftentimes what the companies are looking for are guaranteed costs fixed for a period. You know, so if you've got like a, a I don't know, this is a bad example, and I, you know we don't spend enough to to get this yet on like Google Cloud, but you'd you'd go from pay as you go model to a to a fixed cost contract. Does that model, you know, that model from a company perspective is uh, probably beneficial from the fact that you can negotiate a fixed you understand what your cost profile is and you can and you can and you can um and you can make decisions around it and you can probably negotiate quite well with that approach. But does that cause problems or violate the the disallowed cost rule how do companies deal with that they'll still from a qs point of view they'll still take the total cost that month look at the actual usage and do a quick back calculation to work out approximate cost i've had that conversation in the past some are fine some say oh would you mind just signing this document to say my calculation is right obviously that's a a weird place that yeah you don't really want to be as the vendor so um yeah, they'll still back calculate it to work it out if their intention is to charge projects, of which most do intend to charge projects. But as long as they have access to a user list and they can see which projects they're on, it's pretty easy to to do that retrospectively. Um, how does it work? Obviously, uh, you know, we're talking about how with you're talking from experience from our from our software where we have a we have a seat based pricing model. If you were if you were using a piece of software that wasn't seat based, so let's go back to the AI example. AI probably isn't a, a seat-based model. If you had uh, projects across a business making different calls to an API to get predictions or results or analysis, what would you do as the quantity surveyor then on a project to to prove the the cost? Because presumably you don't want to go through an API call log over a month and try and work out which ones belong to which <laughs> yeah. project. Yeah, I think tools like that will just end up in that project overhead. So every year the company will reevaluate what their fee percentage should be and then within that fee there is a whole list of stuff that they're including from hr to the lease on the head office building all the way down to specific pieces of software you'd bet there's always a bit of buffer in there anyway to account for bits and pieces that are being spent so they're not in a loss making position so that's why they'll constantly try and rationalize tools we know a lot of contractors they're getting asked to sort of rattle down 60 software vendors to 20 and sort of back their horse rather than allow everyone to purchase what they want because the cost gets out of hand. So, yeah. Interesting. It's, it's all, it does feel like observing from the outside that there's like, there is a, 
there is a, a way of purchasing and accounting and, and managing costs across projects and companies that, that might be a little bit behind where a lot of the, the rest of the economy might be. Yeah, big time. There's just so many hurdles, right? Whether it's commercial, IT, the project, you've got BIM teams, lean teams, planet, like everyone has a view, everyone has a process, everyone has their own checklist of things they need. There's data, there's data rules from the contractor, from the client, from us on how we actually want to function as a business. So yeah, trying to pull all that together is not easy. What yeah. a note to finish on. Yeah, 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 yeah. What a positive way to end a podcast. As we um, just paid off into oblivion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. That's uh, that's all we've got time for today, everyone. So thank, as always, thank you very much for listening.